It's that time of year again, a time for spooky tales, pumpkin carving, and candy corn. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. We've got the spooky tales covered in this next half hour. The candy corn and the pumpkin carving? Well, that's up to you. New York City is home to a multitude of museums. But the one we're about to visit has more to offer than historical artifacts. The Merchant's House Museum on Manhattan's Lower East Side may have ghosts as part of its permanent collection. I recently visited the museum to learn more about its history and its possible haunting. The museum's Anthony Belov served as my guide. This house, the Merchant's House, is the sole surviving intact 19th century home in Manhattan. If you wanted to come to a place and experience what New York was like in the era when it was becoming a world center of finance and trade and experience it through the eyes of the people who actually witnessed it, this is the place you need to come. Tell me about the folks who lived in this house, the Treadwells. The Treadwells were considered part of New York aristocracy in those days. Seabury Treadwell, the father, was not born in New York. He came here from uh, the wilds of Long Island as a youth and made his fortune as a hardware merchant. And in 1835, he felt ready to retire. He was in his 50s, and he had made quite a sizable fortune for those years and said, it's time to enjoy the good life. So he cast about and decided to buy a home in the best neighborhood in New York, which in those days was called the Bond Street area. We're just two blocks north of Bond Street here on East 4th. And so he bought a house that had been built three years earlier, moved his family at that time, his wife and seven children, into the house in 1835 and lived the rest of his life here. In 1840, his most famous child, Gertrude, was born here in the house. As far as we know, she was the only immediate member of the family to be born here. How is it, Anthony, that a home like this is still intact after all of these years in ever-changing New York City? As the years went by, the remaining members of the family dug in their heels and stayed put until ultimately it was just Gertrude left. And when she died in 1933, she had a couple of mortgages on the house. She'd completely run out of money. And uh, the house was going to be either demolished, converted into commercial space uh, or tenement lodging, and the collection would have been dispersed at auction. A distant cousin by the name of George Chapman heard about the uh, pending doom of the house, and he stepped in and saved it lock, stock, and barrel and opened it in 1936 as a museum. Incredible, just three years after the last Treadwell died here. Well, yes, three years after Gertrude died, but possibly not after she left the house. We have a lot of people who report uh, walking by the museum outside and hearing the piano being played, uh, which is very interesting because it is the Treadwell piano and it's a beautiful 1840s piano, but it's unplayable. We have a a very long list of experiences that people have shared with us. Uh, For a long time, the museum was run by the Decorators Club of New York, and there's stories all through the 50s and 60s about just strange goings-ons, figures walking on the staircase, moans and groans occasionally, strange smells. The earliest story is of a curator who was here in the house in 1935 going through the clothing collection. And she sensed somebody staring at her intently. She turned and saw a petite elderly woman with white hair, tiny woman, standing in the doorway looking at her intently as if to say, what are you doing here? 
Now, she just assumed, naturally, it was one of the other curators, until she realized that the woman in 1935 was wearing a dress that was at least 30 years out of fashion. As soon as she realized this, the figure in the doorway vanished. Was Gertrude the only member of the family who died in the house? Uh, Gertrude was not the only member of the family to die in the house. We believe that, we know that there were eight uh, eight deaths and nine funerals held in the house. We're sitting right now in the front parlor, which in the month of October is decked out in high mourning, uh, which I might interject is something you rarely see in a historic house, so it's definitely worth coming down. I'm sitting here looking at a coffin draped in black crepe right now, and that reminds us that death was very much a part of life, particularly in the 19th century. People did not go to funeral parlors. Death was not removed from the everyday reality of people's lives. And we know of nine funerals and eight deaths here in the house. A cousin died elsewhere, and then the funeral was held here in the parlor. This here recreates Seabury's funeral? We've chosen arbitrarily to recreate Seabury's funeral because uh, of the decor of the house and the way the house is currently interpreted, uh, places it squarely in the middle of the 19th century. And Seabury died in 1865. So it's, it's a convenient um, year for us to choose to interpret the funeral. What's pretty fascinating about funerals during this time, especially funerals in the house, is that they didn't have embalming in the 19th century. So it could smell, but they used flowers to camouflage the smell. A lot of our current funeral customs go back to a time uh, prior to embalming. Embalming did not become popular until the late 19th century, and uh, the embalmment of President Lincoln, because he had that long train tour that he took throughout the country on his way to uh, his final entombment in Illinois, he needed to be embalmed. And gradually through the later part of the 19th century, embalming began to catch on. But before that, it was basically the family who was responsible for preparing the corpse for burial, which meant washing it. If you think about the old productions of A Christmas Carol, you see uh, Jacob Marley always has something tied around his head. And that was to keep his jaw from slacking open during rigor mortis. Uh, so that the body could would be presentable. Uh, in the hot months, if somebody died, there was a special type of a coffin with a compartment underneath it that could be filled with ice so that the body wouldn't begin to decay so quickly. And now we fill funeral parlors with uh, flowers. Of course, we're thinking uh, in terms of cheering up the bereaved. But in the 19th century, this was to mask the stench of decaying flesh. Besides Gertrude, any indication that any of the other Treadwells might still be hanging about? We also have tales of a stern-looking older gentleman appearing. There's one story of a young boy who was part of a school group who dashed into the front bedroom, the front master bedroom, because there's two master bedrooms, and uh, ahead of his group and came basically running by, right back out again, looked at the docent who was escorting the group and said, the man in there scares me. And the uh, docent, you know, just assumed it may have been another docent. There are several entrances to this room, or it could have been a staff member or someone like that. But when they walked into the room just moments later, there was no one in the room. Uh, the child promptly forgot about this because he got involved in his, you know, classroom activities. But when they came downstairs to the front parlor and he walked in through the front door, he stopped cold and pointed at a portrait hanging on the wall and said, that's the man I saw upstairs. And the portrait, of course, was of Seabury Treadwell. Uh, at the time he claimed he saw Seabury, he would have had no information at all to tell him that that was Seabury's bedroom he was in. And Seabury is looking at us right now. The portrait is hanging right behind you. 
Exactly. What about you, Anthony? Have you experienced anything paranormal during your time here? I have experienced an amazing number of, of occurrences in the house. Smells, sounds. Just a few months ago, I was participating in an event. We have a musical group called the Bond Street Uterpian Singing Society, which is an umbrella group that presents live 19th century entertainment in the parlor, so we can experience that aspect of life. And um, I was participating in a performance, uh, and I felt someone jab me in the ribs three times, quite hard. Uh, and I thought it was somebody trying to get my attention. And when I spun around, of course, there was no one there. And at exactly that moment in the program, several other people also reported either feeling intense flashes of heat or uh, four people said that they thought they saw a, a petite elderly woman seated on one of the museum collection chairs and they were wondering what she was doing there and why she was allowed to sit there and then it was this was all at the same moment in the program. Can we actually go up to Gertrude's bedroom? Is that still intact from when she passed away? Gertrude's bedroom is still part of the museum experience. Uh, the bed she died in is still there in all its glory. It was Seabury's bed, and we have every reason to believe that later on in life, Gertrude moved into Seabury's room because that was the best room in the house, and this was, at that point, her house. And she died in that bed in, in 1933. Great. Can you walk me up there and show me it? Let's go. <laughs> I must say, I'm going to say this on record here, because my microphone has been acting up. And when we were walking up the steps, it started to act up again. And as soon as we walked in this room, Gertrude's bedroom, it started to cut out on me again. That's a little freaky. You may or may not know that we're currently undergoing a, um, a paranormal investigation in the museum. We thought it behooved us to follow up on so many of these reports and see if there was something that we could put our finger on. And the first night that they were here, they set up a recording, an audio recording device, in Mrs. Treadwell's bedroom. And the electric meter or something like that kept flying off the charts and buzzing like crazy, indicating there was some sort of energy that no one could explain in there. And when they went to listen to the audio recording, it had completely cut out. And we're about to cut out. Anthony, thanks so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. You're welcome. I hope everybody comes and visits the house. Anthony Belov is the ghost historian at the Merchant's House Museum on Manhattan's Lower East Side. The museum has a variety of Halloween happenings. Find out more, if you dare, at merchantshouse.com. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Boo. Coming up next in the show, we'll visit the final resting place of a man and woman at the center of one of New York City's most twisted true crime stories. This morning, we are in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn to talk about a very sordid, gruesome tale in New York City history. And I have the author with me of Butchery on Bond Street, Sexual Politics and the Burdell-Cunningham Case in Antebellum, New York. His name is Benjamin Feldman. Benjamin, thanks so much for taking us out here. My pleasure, George. I never miss a chance. First of all, let's talk about the subtitle. Sexual Politics in the Burdell-Cunningham Case in Antebellum, New York. The phrase antebellum might be new to some people. Antebellum in American history means before the Civil War, not the Revolutionary War, not the so-called war in Iraq, not the Vietnam War. It means the Civil War. 
So antebellum is the years, the decade really, before 1861. This book takes us to 1857. That's right, a very, very hot year in antebellum politics, the year the Dred Scott decision in the Supreme Court was handed down, among other things. What was New York like at that time, crime-wise? Let's talk about the few months just prior to when Harvey Burdell was found dead on the morning of January 31st, 1857. There had been a crime wave in New York. And when we talk, when I say New York, I mean Manhattan here, and I mean really Manhattan south of 42nd Street. A crime wave means uh, stranger violence in the streets among all classes, not just in the lower classes, where, of course, there's continual violence going on. New York was a mariner's town, and etc. But among middle class and upper middle class and wealthy people were afraid to go out in the street. We are this morning standing before the gravesite of Harvey Burdell. You referenced Harvey. Harvey wasn't killed on the street. Harvey was killed in his own home, in his dentist's office. That's correct, George, and it's one of the two things that make this crime so not only so fascinating, but made it uh, absolutely dominate the media, both in New York City as well as across the country and even in Europe for the first eight months of 1857. An upper-middle-class so-called sporting gentleman, uh, a well-respected scientific medical dentist, this man was found murdered, gruesomely murdered, in the sanctity of his own home in his second-floor dental clinic. That's one count that made this crime so famous. The New Yorkers in 1857 were very curious about this case. They gathered outside of 31 Bond Street, where this murder took place. Just as we see in our times, when something crazy happens, uh, unless there's security reasons, people flock to the site. And the media just went wild with his story. They covered every salacious detail. Every single little detail of the wounds, of the testimony about them, of the, of the blue veins up his face, of the nature of the coagulation on his clothing that had to be cut off of his body. It was so soaked with gore and it had dried overnight in all likelihood. It was more information that you really needed to know. Let's talk about the accused here. Emma Augusta Hempstead Cunningham. She was accused of this crime. She lived in this house. She was his mistress, also served as the landlady of the boarding house that he ran. That's correct. And she was not always the landlady. First, she was his mistress. After uh, the second pregnancy that uh, she uh, experienced with him being the putative father of the child, she moved into his house in the fall of 1855 after they returned from Saratoga Springs. She ended up settling a breach of promise case with Harvey Burdell, except it didn't really end up settling. Uh, but the paper said that she'd take over the house as landlady in May 1st of 1856, which she did, moving herself and her five children into the landlady's quarters on the third floor. This is a case of what I call fatal attraction. Here are two people, they meet in the, in the late summer, early fall of 1854. You got a good-looking widow. She's 33 years old. She meets Harvey Birddale. She's got five kids. She's widowed. She's got about 5,000 bucks to her name, net net of debts, etc. So what do you do? You've got to find a husband, a rich husband, quick. You mentioned that she took him to court for breach of promise because he didn't marry her. But she also married someone. People thought it could have potentially been Harvey Birddale. It wasn't. She actually went with an imposter 
and made people think that it was Harvey Burdell. Reverend Uriah Marvin, Dutch Reformed Church, Amos Street in the West Village, in his rectory at 732 Greenwich. Mary's, here's the signatures, Harvey's, Emma's, and the Reverend's. Except it was shown later that Emma's last paramour, uh, John Eckel, had gone down to a uh, hair parlor in the Astor Hotel and gotten a dye job and a, a, a beard trim so he looked like Harvey Burdell and a little toupee to put on also. And it's the two of them, in all likelihood, or so the surrogate ruled, uh, went in and got married. Let's talk about the trial because it was interesting to me to learn that the trial took place in the dentist office at the murder scene. What took place in the dentist's office uh, was the coroner's inquest. But in that day, a coroner's inquest was not just how the decedent died or what was the cause of death. If the cause of death was homicide, it was who'd done it also. And because it was such a political football, the coroner, Edward Downs Connery, whose sole qualification for his appointment was that he'd been the drama critic for the New York Herald, put on a circus there, and the jury came back, the inquest jury came back with a verdict as instructed. Yeah, he got murdered, duh. Uh, and Emma Cunningham did it, and her boyfriend, John Eckel helped out, and they're indicted. But she was, for all intents and purposes, tried at that coroner's inquest because the papers inculpated her. The jury found that she did it, and she was going to hang. But she did not. She was acquitted. How did that happen? So she meets this guy, Henry Lauren Clinton. He is a combination of Clarence Darrow and Johnny Cochran. Clinton and Emma decided that they're going to prove her marriage. They're going to prove her marriage in Supreme Court without this circus atmosphere, and she is going to be uh, uh, shown to be a paragon of virtue. Harvey Burdell is a, a predator. I don't want to use words that we can't use on the radio, but, the, you know, whatever, whatever. And he's going to try their respective and relative degrees of morality. He succeeded in four and a half days. The marriage was accepted by this, uh, the jurors in the Supreme Court, although it didn't have the force of civil law. And, and she uh, rode in her carriage, up to 31 bond, a free woman four and a half days after this trial started, making a whoopee, but she didn't stop there. And finish the story. Emma Cunningham, while she was in the tombs in the spring of 57, had at one point called her private physician, Samuel Catlin, into the prison and had said something to him that she was pregnant with the decedent's unborn child. But that was let go, and, and, and nothing was made of it. Nobody heard a word of that. Emma had called her private doctor, Samuel Catlin, again. So he came over to her house, and he examines her as she's not pregnant. And he says, you know, well, you know, she says, well, just between you and me, I want you to play ball with me, you know. I mean, cause I need, because if my marriage is proven not to exist, at least the baby will have the right to the estate. And so Catlin gets kind of nervous. With this, he's nervous. He goes and talks to a fellow named Dr. David Yule, who's one of his colleagues in the Manhattan medical profession. And unfortunately, Catlin picked a very uh, mistaken person, made a big mistake talking to Yule, because Yule's also good friends with the district attorney. The DA was gunning for Emma Cunningham. He had been vanquished, embarrassed in this uh, in this murder trial. This is a golden opportunity for. I mean, Paul Newman. That, that sting there was nothing. This was a sting. They devised a sting. They set her up, basically. She thought that she was going to borrow a baby from Bellevue Hospital. 
the district attorney and his doctor buddies go over to Bellevue Hospital, go to the indigent lying in wards, talk to Mrs. Elizabeth Anderson, uh, hi, we want to borrow your baby. And they go up to 3rd Avenue and 25th Street to the abattoir district. They borrow, a, they buy a bucket of calves' blood. The district attorney, in his own name, rents a couple rooms, lying in rooms, over a lager beer saloon on Elm Street. They get a druggist, a man from 2nd Avenue, to come over, lie in bed, put a sleep cap on, put a nightgown on, and start screaming like he's giving birth. And they trot Emma in with a fishmonger's basket because she's been told to show up and get the baby. She shows up. They give her the baby. She takes the baby away. Of course, the cops have followed her up on the streetcar, downtown on the streetcar, and they follow her back. And she's not upstairs at 31 Bond with her baby uh, for more than five minutes. The cops... Uh, come charging up the stairs. They grab her. She's very upset. They carry her out of 31 Bond into a paddy wagon on a mattress, screaming and yelling, and take her over and throw her in jail in the Jefferson Market Police Court over there at 6th Avenue and 10th Street. So she sits there in, in the Jefferson Market Courthouse jail for 30 days about and is finally let out because there's not enough evidence, according to the police court judge, to prove criminal intent. She didn't actually march into court with the baby. That's the decision. Meanwhile, she lost the case in the surrogate's court. She's got nothing. When all was said and done, Emma picked herself up and she moved to California. She remarried. And this case here in New York remains, more than 150 years later, unresolved. It is unresolved, and uh, nobody will ever know who did it. And uh, the case not only uh, remained unresolved, but it remained notorious in New York. I mean, beyond notorious for more than three decades. Ben, until recently, this grave, as well as Emma's grave, they were unmarked. That's right. Uh, Harvey had a temporary wooden marker for a year or two. That fell apart God knows how long ago. Emma was, Emma's grave was never marked, and both these unfortunate individuals have lain here for 150 years. You helped to come up with the funding to put this gravestone. It's a, a wonderful thing I, I felt to have done. You know, neither of them uh, was well regarded by their families. Well, let's go pay our respects to Emma Cunningham. Well, Ben, now here we are at Emma's gravesite, Emma Augusta Hempstead Cunningham. Do you have an inscription on this tombstone? May God rest her troubled soul. If her soul wasn't troubled, I don't know whose was she, and she had plenty of reasons. So I had to come up with something that I thought was not in admiration of her, not in a paying to her, because I don't pass judgment on her, good or bad, but I know one thing, if I know anything about this case, is this woman was a very troubled individual. It's interesting because, as we said, this case has remained unsolved, but if, in fact, she did have something to do with it, she took it to her grave. Yep. Uh, Emma, Emma died with a lot of secrets, uh, I'm, I'm sure, and a lot of suspicions, and that's really, in a way, what this book is about. Butchery on Bond Street. Ben Feldman, thanks so much. You're welcome. My pleasure. Butchery on Bond Street is out now from New York Wanderer Press. Author Ben Feldman is giving a lecture this afternoon at the Museum of the City of New York. You can learn more at butcheryonbondstreet.blogspot.com. Halloween is one of those occasions that allow us to stretch our imaginations, to immerse ourselves in make-believe. And that's just what we're about to do with our next guest. 
Brooklyn resident Johan Olander is a self-described monstrologist. His new children's book is called A Field Guide to Monsters, Googly-Eyed Wart Floppers, Shadow Casters, Toe Eaters, and Other Creatures. He joined me in the studio earlier this week to talk about it. Johan, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Some people may be unfamiliar with your line of study, monstrology. What does it entail exactly? It's about finding and identifying and um, cataloging monsters and not the monsters we are used to in culture, like uh, vampires or werewolves, but the monsters that primarily children discover the the things under the bed, the things in the closets, the things in the act, attics and basements. What's really fascinating about monsters is, like you say, not everyone can see them. Children, though, do. How come? Well, it appears like the ability to see monsters narrows as you grow older. I would say that you're you're in your prime below six years old when you're completely open, you have an absolutely open mind. After that, it, the field narrows. At 16, very few at grown-up, very few people can see monsters, and there's a, a very, very uh, small amount of grown-ups that are able to do it. But although we can't see them, they still lurk amongst us. Oh, uh, all over, yes, yes. They inhabit a special realm that's in between fantasy and reality. And I, I visualize it as being a wave pattern in both these realms. And sometimes they overlap, and in this overlapping that's the world where monsters are. You find vampires and werewolves in fantasy, and you find cars and buses in reality. But in this overlap, you find the real monsters. How long have you been studying monsters? Oh, more than 30 years since I was a little boy. Incredible. Your book uncovers more than 25 previously unknown monsters. Some are not dangerous, though, to humans, like the balloonster. No, some and some are even friendly. The balloonster is mostly a, a shocker. It inhabits balloons and, and groups them together in this different frightening images. And then it disappears or, or pops off and, and nothing really happens. But it can be extremely startling. Where do we find balloonsters? Car dealerships, um, birthday parties, anywhere you see large amounts of balloons. The most famous balloonster sighting was in Paris in the late 1700s when the balloon hysteria was going on. The first major balloons were made. And one large balloon was inhabited by a balloonster and scared all of Paris. You have amassed a lot of historical evidence of monster sightings, some that dates back to ancient times. I have, for instance, a a record of uh, uh, petroglyphs from uh, southwestern Sweden. They're more than ten to 15,000 years old, and they clearly show a tadpole monster chasing humans and animals. A tadpole monster? The tadpole monster is a very odd monster. It's very common. You see it scribbled in children's drawings. It's one of the monsters that are seen by most young children. It's a large head and uh, spindly legs and spindly arms sticking out of a big head, basically. Another monster that's not dangerous to humans, but yet it has a dark side, is the patootie. Oh, yes, the patootie. It's one of the cutest monsters in in the book, in in my studies. And it looks endearing. It has large eyes. It's fluffy and soft. It looks like the the cuddliest toy you can imagine. But as it gets taken into a home, it changes rapidly and starts eating all other plush toys. It's an incredibly jealous little monster. It doesn't hurt humans, but it eats all the other toys. 
I don't want to panic anyone, Johan, but some monsters do eat humans. Tell us about the creature known as the beach krill. It tunnels under the beach and grabs especially humans or pets that stray alone. So one thing to be very careful about is to stay together with your group when you're on the beach or if you're swimming. You've encountered the beach krill yourself. Yes, but it was, a, it was just a close call. Uh, I wasn't actually able to see the whole body. I saw its telescopic eyes stick out of the sand, and then it tunneled rapidly away from me, leaving a, a, a hollow in the beach. Another very dangerous monster is the bed wolf. It suspends itself in the bed frame with its uh, hind legs and front legs. And then it has an extra set of arms in the middle, and those are the grabber arms. And once it's suspended on, under the bed, it can catch uh, anything or anyone who ventures in under the bed. How do you protect yourself from this creature? Oh, jumping into bed. Jumping into I, bed. I always do anyway. The hanger is certainly a disturbing creature. It lives in closets, Johan, and it eats both leather and humans. This is why you should always turn the lights on when you stretch your arms into the closet. There are specific tools that you use any time you go out on a monster hunt. What are they? I like to have a pen and paper for initial notes, and then a blanket or a sheet that I cut two holes in so I can make a little hiding area for myself. And then potpourri or strong-smelling items is, is very good. I make my own potpourri. I, have a, I always carry in my hat. And I use uh, curry, cloves, and Karl Lagerfeld cologne. That basically camouflages the human scent. Yes, yes. Absolutely amazing. Johan Olander, your new book is a field guide to monsters, googly-eyed wart floppers, shadow casters, toe eaters, and other creatures. Thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you for having me. He did the monster match. When he's not out chasing monsters, Brooklyn resident Johan Olander is a freelance writer and illustrator. His new book, A Field Guide to Monsters, is published by Marshall Cavendish. You can find Johan online at monstrology.com. And that's it for this special Halloween edition of Cityscape. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend.